0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI, You can generate any text you want, job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com designed for work.
1: Uh, No, no. I I never think he's out of his mind. I I just think that he's nuts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nuts. That's one way to have your dad describe you. But when you have a creative streak like Lin Manuel Miranda's, maybe it's not such a bad thing. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Taken for Granted, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. My job is to think again about how we work, lead, and live. You probably know Lin-Manuel from creating and starring in the cultural phenomenon that is Hamilton. Maybe you were one of the millions who saw it on Broadway or streamed it on Disney. Maybe you have the t-shirt I bought. My thoughts have been replaced by Hamilton lyrics. But before Lin created the musical that has redefined the way many teachers cover history, he was a teacher. And before that, he was a student himself. In 1999, he began writing his first hit musical, which went on to win multiple Tony Awards. What does suenito mean?
2: Suenito. It means little dream. That's it? No story?
0: All right, all right, everybody sit down, sit down. Dad!
1: It's a story of a block that was
0: disappearing. In the Heights, co written with Chiara Alegria Hudies, tells the story of a bodega owner in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan who dreams of a better life. The film adaptation of In the Heights just launched, and it took me on a roller coaster of emotions from joy to sorrow and moral outrage to elevation. I loved it.
2: What? Still ain't got no skills.
0: (laughs) After we recorded this conversation, Afro-Latinx critics raised concerns about their underrepresentation in lead roles. Lin-Manuel responded to these concerns on Twitter, saying, I started writing In the Heights because I didn't feel seen. And over the past 20 years, all I wanted was for us, all of us, to feel seen. I can hear the hurt and frustration over colorism, of feeling still unseen in the feedback. I'm learning from the feedback. I thank you for raising it, and I'm listening. I'm trying to hold space for both the incredible pride in the movie we made and be accountable for our shortcomings. I got the chance to talk with Lin-Manuel, together with his dad, political strategist and activist Luis A. Miranda Jr. Along with being a force of nature in his own right, Luis has a long history of collaborating with his son. He hired Lin for a summer job as a teenager and went on to promote his first musical. Now Luis is Lin's gatekeeper, and they do a lot of philanthropy together. So I figured Luis could shed some light on what makes Lin tick. We picked up some of the honks and horns of New York City in the background. So welcome to The
2: Zoom Where It Happened. I'm Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, I'm the uh, uh, composer of In the Heights, uh, the movie. Hi. I am
1: Luis Miranda. I proud myself to be the guy who tries to get things done.
0: Luis, tell us about how Lynn worked for you when he was in high school. I heard you ended up demoting him to data entry.
1: Uh, whenever he didn't care about something, he just didn't care about it. And he, he was always very sweet about it, uh, but he just didn't do it. And when things need to get done, you just fire someone, uh, but when that person is your son, it's more difficult to fire that person. So you just demote that person, and uh, he knew that he was being demoted. But you make them feel strong uh, in, in this new responsibility,
2: which is. I key. Listen to. I listened to a lot of wonderful music while I entered that data. And that was more interesting to me than the more uh, cumbersome tasks that were laid upon me earlier in the story. Writing but was
1: on the wall. There, 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 there were all important tasks that he, you know, that's, that's the way he was as a child as well. If he was not interested in something, he just didn't do it.
0: That reminds me of a classic study of creative architects, where one of the things that differentiated the most creative architects from their peers was they had spikier grades in school. They excelled in topics that interested them, and they basically flunked everything that didn't. Lynn, it sounds like you were that kid.
2: Yes, um, and here's where I get to bring up uh, my um, one of the the uh, toughest things about senior year of high school where my father forced me to take AP statistics. Uh, and he said... Um, it'll make you look well-rounded and i said i'm not well-rounded <laughs> so you know my my grades reflected um you know I, I did okay in english and i did okay in history and um and and all of the arts uh, things i was lucky enough to take but yeah for better or worse i mean in the heights was written in an astronomy, Class <laughs> that I did not get a very good grade in. I was supposed to be paying attention.
1: And and you have to understand that astronomy class was his science requirement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say this this clearly paid off when when seeing in the heights, but. It all worked out fine. <laughs> Lynn, I have to wonder, there have to be tasks now that are not intrinsically interesting or meaningful to you that are still important for you to be able to produce your brilliant work. How do you motivate yourself now? And what would you tell your teenage self?
2: Uh, a couple of things. One, um, the the things I cared enormously about then and now were, were making things um, and making things with my friends. I really when I sort of fell in love with theater by not by seeing shows, but by doing shows in elementary school and junior high and high school, you can't fire your cast mates. You can't pay them. (laughs) You're, you're, you're in school. Um, The only thing you have as a motivational tool is your belief in the thing itself and, and being, getting others to believe that we can make something greater than the sum of our parts. And so I, I, I was probably more intense even then than I was now because that was all I had. And I cared passionately about um, making things, whether they were movies or whether they were plays. Um, And, and so, you know, but again, what comes with, uh, I also learned very early on that I I thrive on deadlines and that can be a positive thing, not necessarily like it's Monday morning and you haven't done your homework yet. Uh, But Tommy Kail, uh, who is, you know, maybe the most important collaborator in my life, realized very early that I thrived on deadlines. So he just said, let's meet every Friday before any producer ever saw In the Heights, before, you know, anyone, before even Chiara was on board in 2004, he just said, bring in something every Friday. We'll meet in the basement of the drama bookshop. And on days when I brought in stuff, we had stuff to talk about. And again, like it became a joy work towards that Friday meeting. Uh, And that's how In the Heights gets made. That's how Hamilton gets made is by um, knowing that if I bring, if I work hard um, and writing is always hard, I'm going to get to bring it into a room with, with smarter uh, folks than me. And we're all going to get to kick the tires on it and make something better.
1: And and let me tell you, and the second part of that question that he avoided because he didn't like it. Uh, which is how does he motivate with things that he doesn't like to do? By now, I know he has a great team of people around him uh, that help in every way. It's the thing on the agenda that gets pushed weak after week, after week, and then I finally ask him, you're never gonna do this, right? So why don't we have so-and-so do
2: this? And then he gets done. Wow, remind me to do more podcasts with my dad. <laughs> he called out on the part I didn't
0: answer. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, I, I love that. If it doesn't get done, delegate it. I think that could be useful for anyone yep. trying to manage a creative genius. Yep. So let, let's talk about In the Heights. I love the final product. I'm guessing the process is a little more mundane of creating it. And Luis, I wondered if you've learned anything from watching your son create, or is it the most boring thing in the world to watch Lynn write?
1: No, not at all. And, uh, and I follow it very carefully uh, because, like my wife, he thrives on deadlines. Uh, I'm the guy who you tell that something it's due next month and I'll start working now so that it's done a week before it's due and there's time to review it. That's not uh, Lin-Manuel. So I have seen this process unfold over two decades Uh, and it's always fascinating because what comes next, it's certainly better. And there's always a real rationale and a real road that he followed of why he ended up at this new place.
0: Well, you and I are cut from the same cloth. Then my first TED talk was about how I'm a precrastinator instead of a procrastinator. You give me a you give me a deadline, and I will find a time machine to finish it early if I have to. And I was stunned to discover that often people who procrastinate are more creative than people who dive right in because they incubate. They wait for the best idea instead of rushing into the first idea. Lynn, I wondered if there's anything in there in your creative process and what you know about creativity that most people get wrong.
2: Oh, man. Uh. I, I think for me, um, yeah, I, I, I've always uh, sort of said what you said in a joking way. Is there's, there's kids who do their homework on Friday night, and there's kids who do their homework on Monday morning. And for the life of me, I wish I were a Friday night kid. I'm sure it would result in less stomach aches. Uh, but that being said, um, incubation is a really important part of the process. I think of the final numbers of two of my musicals, uh, both In the Heights and Hamilton, they were both written on mornings of workshops where actors were waiting for the last song in the show. And we spent the morning, you know, I remember, four, like the hydrants are open, cool breezes blow, arriving at four o'clock in the morning uh, on the day of a reading uh, and and writing all of that. Um, as quickly as, as possible. And, um, and the same is true of, of Hamilton, you know, Eliza's whole last section. I, I woke up like a shot at 3am, um, and had to get it done by 9am to give it to Pippa to learn for our reading at noon, as, uh, I'm sure, uh, my actors were incredibly stressed out by not having that material yet. I I don't know any other way around it. I I was um you're gonna love this, but uh, James Lapine's written a book on the making of Sunday in the Park with George, and um there's there's a good long they went into rehearsal of that without a second act. They went into performances with an audience without a second act. And at one point, Mandy Patinkin grabbed Sondheim and said. Give me anything. I don't care if it's a piece of shit. Just give me something to sing. Um, and uh, and and sometimes taken aback, said, "I'm working on it. I'm working on it." And then he went on to write, finishing the hat, which is maybe the greatest song about the artistic process that exists. But it really is about getting yourself into that mind state where the world disappears.
1: One of the things that I I, I have learned. Uh, mostly over the last year in working closely with Lin-Manuel and with him having so many balls in the air, it's that initially the way we handle it was, okay, he could work on Encanto from 11 to 1, uh, and he is going to work on Tick Tick Boom from this time to this time, to realize that's not the way the creative process works, probably for anybody, and certainly not for Emmanuel, And sort of working hard now with the team and saying, okay, today's an Encanto day. Don't put anything else. Let him just marinate whatever he has in his head. And even if he's doing nothing but eating chocolate cake, let him eat chocolate cake. Because that's how he's going to be marinating the next song he needs.
0: That's amazing. Uh, I have so many questions about that, but I want to. I want to talk about one of the characters in in the Heights, um, Nina. Her arc uh, is so is so interesting that she's the first in her family to go to college, but then she struggles when she gets to Stanford. And it reminded me of some recent evidence in psychology that there's a mismatch between the collectivistic cultures that we often see in immigrant communities and the individualistic cultures that dominate our American universities and workplaces. I would love to hear both of your thoughts about how we can change that. How do we take a school or a workplace where help seeking seems like a sign of weakness and make it a source of strength? How do we build a sense of community in these very independent worlds of achievement that we've created in the U.S.?
1: A long, long time ago, I'm talking about decades ago, I worked in a place called the National Action Council for Minorities in Engineering, (NACME). Uh, there were very few uh, Black, Latinos uh, in engineering, and th- the goal was how do we create programs in universities that celebrate what these new students are bringing into the university, how do we accept a posse? now there is a posse foundation that we're working with, but enough of them so that they have a community and they can work together as a community and how administration is committed to do this. When my wife and I were accepted into the PhD programs in psychology for New York University, 10 out of the 20 PhD students, there were five Blacks, five Latinos, 10 whites. But then we got accepted and there was no professors. Nobody was interested in our dissertation topics. No one was interested in teaching what it was to shrink Latino heads. So none of that existed in the college. So it's not only to accept, it's really to prepare the institution on how to best help
2: those students that they're accepting. And it, it's so interesting. You mentioned the, the Posse Foundation. It's an organization that we've worked with um, um, it, specifically in the arts lane to create a cohort of students who are all going together so that you, you get to school with that Um, that group of fellow students and community resources. And I realized that the inception of in the Heights came out of a proto posse experience for me. I was living in, you know, I got to Wesleyan, um, and lived in dorm housing my freshman year. My sophomore year, I lived in a Latino program house called La Casa del Albizu Campos. You had to write an essay on how you felt you could be a Latino community leader at Wesleyan to get one of the rooms. And it was me and eight other Latino students and I was the arts kid; <laughs> I was the theater major in that house. And there was my my upstairs neighbor, Malta. Um, her passion was helping unionize the janitors at Wesleyan University. Um, the wonderful side effect being that they became our adoptive parents, and they would come to our house uh, to hang out when they weren't working. Um, but again, it was also the first time I really had close friends and a system of you know a, a group of first generation Latino kids around me. And we're making the same pop culture jokes and we're fluent in Spanish and in English and then Spanish, Latino pop culture and American pop culture. And I think that's what gives me the permission to write that first draft of In the Heights. It's realizing, oh, I can bring more of myself to my work than just the pop rock stuff I was writing because I was inspired by Rent in 1997. Um, So it's not just um, you know, whether you thrive or not, but it's really it's it's about the power of being able to bring all of yourself into a room.
0: Well, it's striking to me everyone needs a posse around them who understands their experiences and their backgrounds. It's also interesting, though, Lynn, you wrote this story literally half your life ago. And it would have been very easy to just take what worked on Broadway and do it for the film. But you didn't stop there. You rethought and reimagined some of the major pieces. Why?
2: Well, Kiara gets um, 100% of the credit for the very intelligent updates uh, to the story and to the screenplay. Um, I think, one, we recognize that we're we're further along in our journey as writers, as we were when we were little babies <laughs> making In the Heights in, in 2007 and 2008. Um, and, you know, the world changes and art changes with it. Um, certainly, I, I can point to specific things. Um, Immigration, the the debate around immigration, you know, Sunny is rapping about immigration back in 2007 and 2008. That debate only got more toxic and more divisive. Um, And so her decision to foreground that debate by having one of the characters uh, be uh, an undocumented citizen, um, I think really humanizes it and and really humanizes it in a way, in the best way that art can, which is now that's not some other that you've read about in the headline page. That's a character you love. That's a person you love who um, has grown up here and spent his life here and can't imagine living anywhere else. So you, you can't just put it away. You can't just uh, brush it aside in the same way. Um, and, and also, I think the other thing she did was very subtly but um, intelligently update the level of gentrification in Washington Heights. Uh, in that 2008 version, it's around the corner. It's still all Latino businesses. Um, it's here uh, in 2020. And the question then becomes who who survives, who adapts, who moves on?
0: It's, it's amazing to me that that not only did you do all this updating of it, but that In the Heights wasn't an immediate sensation. Luis, you were selling tickets personally for your adult son's performance at one point. Like
1: did, was there a moment where you said, nah, this isn't gonna work? Uh, never. Uh, you know, I, I will do whatever I have to do for my kids. Uh, then, now, and forever. Uh, and, and no, uh, it, was, it was what needed to be done. I proud myself to be the guy who tries to get things done. And at that point, once the money was there uh, to take uh, the show to the Richard Rogers, now we needed butts for the chairs, the 1,200 chairs at the Richard Rogers every single night. Uh, So then that's what needed uh, to be done, you know. And I use every trick in my book from bendito my son did this show it could only be successful if you come bring your family and your friends <laughs> uh to those that have a little more more presence that you gotta come and and then just reach out to institutions uh it was a show that was a wonderful show uh, it didn't have stars, it didn't have any of the things that people try to put on Broadway in order to make a show successful. And we know that at the end, it paid off.
0: Was there a moment that you doubted yourself or said, you know what, I'm just not sure if this is going to make it?
2: Um, there were lots of moments where I wasn't sure if I'd live to see it. You know, it is. It, it, we don't talk a lot about the the sensation of having an entire show in your head, but it's now not yet on stage for people to see it. It's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling. It is, uh, it is like feeling intellectually pregnant. It is like, it is, it is, you know, I remember Kiara and I, we, we were lucky enough to get the show in the O'Neill theater center to work on it for two weeks, sort of like free workshop, lab space, unlimited coffee, unlimited copies. <laughs> and we, were, we didn't sleep for two weeks. We worked so hard. We did these amazing performances. Everyone's crying after all the shows. And our producers said to us at the end of those two weeks, it's not ready. Um, you've done good work, but it's not ready. And uh, there's still too many storylines. I still don't know what I'm supposed to follow. And you've taken steps forward and you've taken steps backward. And we think we need at least one more workshop before we get a production. And." you know, again, you've got this whole show in your head and all it needs is an audience. All it needs is to not exist only in your head anymore. Um, that's Those are the times when it's the toughest, um, when you can see the distance uh, between um, this work that, you know, again, we're writing theater, these aren't books. They need an audience to live. <laughs> Tinkerbell needs your applause to survive, um, and uh, and so th- that distance can be very tough and very dispiriting. Um, but but that's where you lean on your collaborators, and you just keep working. On my end, uh, it's it's
1: interesting that I, I I lived all of those moments and will get very sad about oh God, we're we're not going the next step. But again, my show, my, my job, is to be the cheerleader. Sometimes Limmanuel tells me that can I just spend some time in sadness? Can I just be a bit introspective about what it's happening? You're trying to fix it. You're trying to get it to the next level. And I my my wife is the person with whom I spend time fixing things and being vulnerable and being sad but with my kids it's okay how do we fix this how how do i go and 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 shake jeffrey seller to move forward
0: (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) everybody should have a parent that relentless i think
2: right and then you have but then you have to say like no we have to make the show better because they were right by the way i shudder to think of the o'neill version of in the heights had uh, had appeared on Broadway, it didn't have the focus it needed. We did have work to do, um, but you can't fix a musical fast. You have to let it talk to you and tell you what it needs. And that's painstaking work.
0: Welcome back to Taken for Granted, and my conversation with Lin Manuel and Luis Miranda.
2: My God, Um, I'm I'm thrilled. uh, The White House called me uh, tonight uh, because uh, I'm actually working on a hip hop album. uh, It's a Lin. When you were
0: 29, you were invited to perform at the White House with the Obamas in the audience. And you took what looks to me like a massive risk. Instead of performing In the Heights, which has already been validated and stamped, you debut a brand new song called Alexander
2: Hamilton. What the hell were you thinking? Who does that? Here's what they said to me. They said, we'd love for you to do something from In the Heights, or if you have anything about the American experience. I have 16 bars on the American experience. Um uh, I didn't have even really the finale of the song yet. I wrote that for the White House itself. I just had the verses uh and and the Alexander Hamilton little chorus um but it was a deadline it forced me to finish the song and I thought if it doesn't work in this room maybe I'll just throw it away. <laughs> like this this feels like a good audience for it. I feel like um, you know, the president has a treasury secretary. He's going to relate. Um, but again, like, yes, it was a massive risk. The only people who had heard the song at that point were maybe Karen Olivo, uh, who I was in the show with every night. Uh, you know, Alex Lacamoire, who ended up playing piano for me and my wife, uh, who wasn't even my wife yet. Uh, so that was it was certainly nerve wracking, but it was also It was thrilling to perform something new in that space. It was thrilling to split a van with James Earl Jones to the White House. The day could have ended there and it would have been a great day. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I took the risk because it was also an encapsulation of what my Hamilton experience would be. I would tell folks the idea. they would laugh. And I would start telling the story and then they'd go, well, wait, then what happened? <laughs> um, and and that's been the experience. That was that experience in miniature. And that's been the experience of Hamilton um, ever since. How
0: did you know this was the right risk to take? I mean, this in many ways, this could have been the biggest performance of your life and you could have blown it, right? It could have just bombed.
2: Yeah, I, I, I honestly, um, I'm probably more timid now than I was then. I think that I was... Um, uh, there's a, a reckless thing that happens when you're a writer, which is the song you're working on now is always your favorite song. <laughs> um, I was really proud of what I was writing and working on. I liked it the best at that moment. Um, so it didn't feel like a. I didn't think about, I just never looked down. I didn't think about what would happen if it didn't come through, I just thought, well, I, this is the best thing I've written because it's the latest thing I've written. And um, I want to show this to them.
0: Luis, did you think your son was out of his mind?
2: Uh, No, no, I I never
1: think he's out of his mind. I I just think that he's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) You have to remember he was on vacation from in the Heights, when he read the Hamilton book uh, and came uh, to the house and said, this is my next musical. I'm never going to say that's ridiculous. And I, I I knew that he was taking the risk. And the entire time he was singing, my wife and I were there, we were just checking people's reaction in the room. I don't think that I looked at him once or at Alex Lackamore once. I was just looking at people like, are uh, they nodding with approval or they're nodding. What, what the fuck is he talking about? Just trying to read the room.
0: Watching that audience is so interesting as a psychologist because, Lynn, you look very nervous in the first maybe two, three sentences, and then you're just in the zone. And the audience goes through the same transformation. They're they're all looking at you like, what is this guy talking about? And they laugh nervously, and then they're hooked. Did it feel that way? Did did you feel the room change?
2: Exactly that way. You've never seen me stammer as much as you have in the intro to that song. The intro was probably the most under-rehearsed part of it and and in a lot of ways the most important part of it i'm setting up quite a weird pitch um but i am stammering i'm really nervous and the first thing i did which was a mistake was like lock eyes with the president of the united states and i realized can't look at him that's too scary then i looked over and there's the first lady and then finally um michelle's mom was at the table with them as well and i was like Okay, I can look at First Abuela. (laughs) I can look (laughs) at at First Mom. She's giving me a beautiful smile. And this this is someone I can talk to. Um, But all of that is happening while I'm trying to set up the premise of this song. And then as soon as the snapping starts, I'm okay. (laughs) Took up a collection just to send them to the mainland. Get your education. Don't forget from whence you came. And the world is going to know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. His name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things he hasn't done. But just you wait, just you wait.
0: Yeah, I I, I find this whole dynamic of creating and performing just endlessly interesting. As a psychologist, given that, Lynn, you're the son of one psychologist and another almost psychologist, one of my biggest fears is screwing up our kids, and I wonder if you could both talk about what, what you learned and what you did to impart psychology into a young mind without uh, without creating a warped child. Uh,
1: I, I think that it's understand, the first item is understand what's your role in that family. Uh, m- my wife, it's the one who gives nurturance. Uh, she's the one who is empathic. She's the one who can hold your hand and make you feel better. That's not who I am. And I know that that's not who I am. I'm the one who holds your hand uh, when he was a little boy that he wanted us to give uh, money to every homeless person that he saw in the street. I'm the guy who's gonna hold his hand and we're gonna go and put a corner on that. And my wife is the one who holds the hand and explains the sadness of seeing someone without a home. So once you understand what's your role in the family, you stay in your lane and you intersect when it's needed. But otherwise, you try to do what you're best at and let the other take over at what they're best at.
0: Lynn, what was that like? Are there lessons that you learned from your psychologist parents about managing emotions, about dealing with conflict?
2: Listen, I had a, I had a DSM-4 on my shelf as a no, teenager. No. I was like, oh, this is a... Oh, I see. I have seasonal affective disorder. That's why I'm mad while it's raining. Um, these symptoms check out. Um, so, uh, you know, having access to that is is great. But I also... Um, I think I think one of the, the good side effects of having psychologist parents is um, you're very in touch with your feelings and you're able to name them. I, one of my books growing up that I learned was not a shared childhood experience. It was not exactly Good Night Mood, it was TA for tots, Transitional Analysis <laughs> for tots, where you talk about warm fuzzies and your cold pricklies. <laughs> It was a book designed to sort of help you talk about feelings, and then you know, cut to me in college, and we're talking about Goodnight Moon, and we're talking about uh, you know, The Very <laughs> Hungry Caterpillar, Rest in Peace, Eric Carle, and I'm like, TA for talks, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> we read it every night. <laughs> no scars.
0: Clearly, no scars from that experience. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. One of the other things that, that I find so interesting about the two of you is you both had prior careers in completely different worlds before you landed where you are. Uh, Luis, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your political experience has foreshadowed now all the creative activism that you're doing in the art scene. Um, and Lynn, obviously, time as an English teacher, how that continues to influence you as a creator and performer. Uh,
1: on, on, on my end, uh, it, it's very, very easy to work with Limanuel, manuel uh, because in my head, he's my political candidate. You know, when you work with political candidates, you are helping them shine. If you have to get on camera, your candidates screwed up and you're going on camera to explain and clean up. Uh, So, it's, it's a similar experience. Everything that we do, it's to make sure that the best of Limmanuel comes forward. Uh, and I continue to be involved in politics. It's just impossible uh, to separate. Uh, but doing everything we can for the issues that we care about, to use the new megaphone that we have, that Lin-Manuel has, that we have as as a family, it's it's an important component of, of continuing that journey uh, of moving the needle forward on progressive causes.
0: Lynn, what about what about the interplay between teaching and creating and performing? What what do you what do you see from your teaching days really affecting the way that you think?
2: My first job out of college was teaching uh, seventh-grade English at my old high school. Um, And it's really as a result of one of my mentors at my high school, my eighth-grade English teacher, Dr. Rembert Herbert, um, is the one who noticed me writing songs in the back of English class and said, you know, we have a student-run theater program. You should write for that. You're very talented. And he was the first person outside of my family to tell me that. Um, And so as I was graduating college, I rung up dr herbert and said are there substitute positions available at hunter i'm going to be trying to make theater and i'm going to have to pay the rent somehow uh and he said actually there's a there's a part-time english position that's that's open and so uh, i went and taught english and i think the biggest lesson i learned um i feel like i should have seen it because all of my favorite teachers did this, um, is you're actually your best as a teacher when you're listening, uh, when your job is to introduce the topic and give everyone the salient details, and then ask questions. Uh, I found that the most profound breakthroughs invariably happened when the kids were learning from each other. Um, And there's a lot of lessons to take away from that in the creative arts space as well. Um, You are as good as the room you Put yourself in um, and you're trying to create an environment both in the classroom and in your artistic collaborations where the best idea in the room wins um, and it doesn't matter where it comes from it doesn't matter if it's in my syllabus to give you or you've come to that realization yourself um, but, but fostering an environment where ideas are supported uh, and the best idea in the room uh, wins. And so that was invaluable. I really, I I went into teaching thinking I was going to be a performer and I realized, oh, that part actually goes out the window. Um, And the the part where you're listening, really listening to your students and then able to turn the conversation, uh, that's actually when you're doing your your best work. And that's also true of acting, by the way, like the actors who really listen are are the most uh, compelling and very
0: I think listening might be the most underrated skill in our lives.
2: 100%. Another
0: topic I wanted to ask you both about is, uh, I guess, what's traditionally called work-life balance, which I think is just a ridiculous concept. I don't know anybody who accomplishes anything worthwhile in steady equilibrium. And it seems to me that what we're striving for is more like rhythm, where there's a repeating pattern of different beats, some might be job or family or friends or health or hobbies that might vary in their duration and in their accent. And I might be stretching the music metaphor here, uh, but I'd be thrilled to hear both of you talk a little bit about how you think
1: about work-life rhythm. I, what I try to do is everyone in my life, personally, it's everybody in my life work-wise. I create this mesh of people who I enjoy just having coffee with and talking about current events or whatever we want to talk, and then we're going to be working together in doing a commercial or doing something that is important. So the way in which I have been successful doing that so that I can work 24-7, it's by marrying my work and my personal uh, life. And quite frankly, the only relationship where that doesn't happen to the extent that the others happen, it's with my wife, because we have very different lanes and it works and it has worked for decades and decades. And why change it uh, when when it does? But you know, I have worked with my daughter for 25 years. Uh, and I work with her every single day of my life. So that's the way I have been able to create that unbelievable song uh, of work and family.
2: We have very different positions. On <laughs> just this. a little. Um, <laughs> just, I, again, like, I reject the premise that the goal is to work 24-7, which was embedded somewhere in Luis Miranda's answer. Oh, it, answer. it is so, the goal the way i have achieved working 24/7 no 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 that's not what everyone was trying to do <laughs> um and but but it is interesting you know my, my wife had an insight really into like a little into the process of writing hamilton when when we were together and married which was um life is always going to present distractions um and uh, the best idea you had, the idea to make a musical of Hamilton, actually happened when you we were on vacation on a pool float with a margarita in your hand. <laughs> um, that moment when your brain can kind of unplug from your day-to-day concerns and really drift. Um, and so she just started booking us vacations. We would go you know, borrow a friend's house out of town, she'd stay the first week with me and leave me alone for a week. Um we'd go to she booked us on a trip to Nevis where Alexandra Hamilton was born. Um booked us in a very nice hotel so she could have a very nice sort of spa time while I worked on nonstop the song at the end of act one. And then we both had a wonderful vacation um because I could really drift and relax. And um so To me, the creativity part doesn't happen without daydreaming. Um, In my line of work, I need to daydream. Just like my dad said, we were getting diminishing returns when I had to work on three different projects in one day. But if there is a day where it's, you know, the only thing on my schedule is really to pick up my kids and tuck them in, even though there's nothing on the schedule, I'm daydreaming. I'm thinking about that next song. I'm thinking about that next um, creative problem that I, ha- I have to solve and so it's it's a bit of a different uh ratio for me or a different rhythm to use your terminology
0: well it's been such an honor to speak with the two of you and a real delight too so much fun in closing i would love to just ask you each what impact do you hope in the heights will have
1: i think that i wanted as a real opening for latinos to be in hollywood uh, I, I have seen uh, the impact that it had on Broadway and how many Latinos got their first Broadway gig uh, with In the Heights and how many had uh, careers in theater. Uh, and it ought not to be that way. Uh, it, there should be an In the height opening in theaters every single week of our
2: lives. And that's what I hope Uh, the movie will do. Yeah, it's not lost on me that at the same time In the Heights is releasing. I'm also uh, an executive producer on a documentary on Rita Moreno, who blazed a trail where there was no trail and was often the only Latina in productions first in the studio system and then through the forties and fifties and sixties. And uh, as you know, I'm so glad that we have this movie that gives her her flowers because she was, she made a way where there was no way. And um, without her, something like in, in the Heights doesn't exist. And where it's, not just one Latina story being told, but lots of stories being told. Um, so, you know, my hope is that in 10 years, people go, what was the big deal about in the Heights? Um, that that would be that would be the goal. Um, and just to say that my dad made a chocolate cake because he was bored and now I'm going to eat this delicious <laughs> chocolate cake.
0: <laughs> Taken for Granted is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by TED with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Constanza Gallardo, Joanne DeLuna, Grace Rubinstein, Michelle Quint, Angela Chang, and Anna Feelin. This episode was produced by James T. Green. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. For their research, thanks to Donald McKinnon on Creative Architects, Nicole Stevens, Sarah Townsend, and Andrea Dittman on Cultural Mismatch, and my collaborator Jihei Shin on Procrastination and Creativity. And special thanks to Whitney Williams for her help in arranging this interview.
1: In the Zoom where it happened, my dad wore pajamas. <laughs> PRX.